brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm going to be talking to the wonderful Claire Fuller, whose latest novel, Unsettled Ground, recently won the Costa Novel of the Year Award. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. This is a truly beautiful book. I'm pleased to have a chance to talk to you about it today and, most importantly, find out about those all-important objects. And I am so happy that we get to hang out, especially on your day off. Why were you having a day off today? I mean, because being a writer, how do you know? How do you plan holidays? It's not a nine to five. No one's telling you when to take a holiday. <laughs> yes, but I I don't really block out time to write, weirdly, because when I count myself as working, either I'm doing things like this, which I'm very happy to do, or I'm writing, and that, that counts as a working day. And even when I'm not writing, I'm on holiday, I am actually still thinking about writing. I just don't tell my husband that. Um, but it's, the book is still very much in my head. But... Because I can write in just kind of 10 minute bursts, I don't need a whole day to go back into the novel and do some writing. So I can fit that in in between all sorts of other things, luckily. How successful are you at disengaging from being an author, being a writer? I probably never disengage from it. Yeah, it fills every moment of my day, really. I'm thinking about either thinking about the book I'm writing or I'm doing some working, actually writing or some promotional work around it. And even when I'm off, I'm thinking about it. So I don't ever disengage. But I'm I'm actually really, really happy with this. It, it feels like it's it's a passion rather than a job. Do you not need some distance of it, though, to be able to look at it? and give you, I don't know, some clarity? Well, I think you need distance from the thing you're writing. So the way I get that is that when I've finished it or when I've finished a bit of it, then I will put it away and not think about it for a while. But I'll be thinking about a different piece of writing or I'll be starting a new book or a short story. So I do get some distance from the pieces of work but I never stop thinking about writing or reading. I mean, I, I suppose I get some distance from my own work by reading other people's work or else just partaking, I suppose, in other media. So a lot of film watching, a little bit of TV watching, a little bit of gardening, other things. But I'm still thinking about words. It's interesting that you watch more film than TV because we're being told constantly and have been for a number of years now that we're living in a golden age of television. Yeah, I know I do watch some TV, some series and things, but I never just switch it on and just see what's on. I'm never just browsing. I watch something very specific, but mostly I watch film at home since the pandemic I haven't been back to a cinema I do miss that but I'm just not quite ready to go back to a cinema but I watch a lot of film at home what I am interested about is you coming across or indeed you being led to an abandoned caravan in a forest 
Yeah, it wasn't quite a forest. It was just a little bit of wasteland, really. Nothing as as beautiful as a forest. My son, in fact, the, the bit of ground was owned by the family of a friend of my son's. Oh, okay. And, and he came across the caravan in the woods in a kind of little spinny. And it was derelict. It was vandalised and... He came home and said, I've been out to this really weird place, Mum. You would love it. Because he knows that I like weird places and odd things. And so he took me out there and he was absolutely right. I did love it. It was incredibly atmospheric, really sad place and really atmospheric. And it had been vandalised. The windows were smashed. The door was hanging off. It had been stained green from being under the trees. There were bits of things that people had left behind, bedding and shoes. And you know what those kind of derelict places look like? That's what it was like. But I just started thinking, who had lived here? Even when it was in a good state, who had lived here? How had they managed? Because there was no, it was a tiny caravan. There was no sanitation. There was no outdoor or indoor loo. There was no electricity. It wasn't even that near a road. And you had to walk through the woods to get to it. So I was just curious about about the place. Is this who you've always been? If we were to meet you as a child, would you walk past something and where someone may just see something that perhaps is innocuous to them, you would see something else? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because all I know is my own experience. But I think I've always been curious about those places. You know, I would explore abandoned places without worrying about that or out of curiosity. I think I am especially drawn to places that humans are left behind. So places where humans have lived and have now abandoned it. It is quite fashionable at the moment, somehow, those those abandoned places. And there are lots of um, websites about them and lots of people photograph them. But I think I've always been quite curious about them and have always made up stories in my head about those places, even as a child. Why? Um, because I... What I'm interested in, I think, is what happens to places that humans have been in after the humans have gone and how humans manage in places that aren't easy to live in. Maybe it is about creating stories because I'd, I've never had to live in a place like that, really. Although I did live six months in a caravan when I was six and that experience has really stuck with me. But it wasn't an abandoned caravan. It wasn't, we didn't live there out of any deprivation. My family was building a house and we lived in this caravan on site. So that experience has really stuck with me. Being six and living in a caravan, presumably it felt like a bit of an adventure, did it? Or did it feel rather squalid? More squalid, I think, than an adventure. The adventurous thing was the building site that the caravan was next to and that this was in the 70s and there wasn't no one thought about health and safety. And at six, I was allowed to run around the foundations and they were up to my head height, the foundations. And it was just like this maze. And we climbed on the bricks and we climbed up the ladders and we just ran around this place like it was our own adventure playground 
But the actual living in the caravan for six months, it was over winter. What I really remember is the cold, so, so cold and no bathroom, an outside loo in a shed that my dad had to empty the bucket and he emptied it in a hole that he'd dug in the ground, which was covered over with a piece of um, a corrugated iron. What I really remember was my Australian cousin coming to stay and us, me and my sister, daring him to walk across the corrugated iron over this pit in the ground where everything was emptied into and he fell in. (laughs) He fell in and then he left his boots under the caravan. This is like one of those family stories that every family's... (laughs) Every family, yes. Um, They were obviously very smelly boots. Um, so that's what I remember. And I remember having to stand at the sink and being washed or having to wash at the sink in the winter, just being so cold. <laughs> was your imagination actively nourished as a child or was it just allowed to wonder? I think it was allowed to wonder. We didn't have many books in the house. My mum is German and when she had me and my sister, we're still really very much learning English. And so she didn't read to us, not that I remember at all. We didn't really have many books. And my dad was somewhat of a reader, but didn't really do that with us. And I can remember watching television with my father, watching a lot of Westerns with my father, lots of John Wayne films. But I think we were just turned out of the house and allowed to play. We lived in the countryside in Oxfordshire and we could come home at tea time and that was it, which was fine by me. We had a few pigs and we had some chickens and some ducks and we just played. What I remember from my childhood is playing outside. So the imagination being nourished, I think we were allowed to roam free so in that way could make our own imaginations but I don't think it came from our parents. Why set this story amidst rural poverty? It wasn't deliberate so I found the caravan in the woods and I started as I said thinking who who had lived here what was their life like and so the main character in Unsettled Ground Jeannie came to me And rather than start in the caravan in the woods, I went back in time and wanted to know a little bit more about her and actually started the very beginning of the book with her mother, knowing that at some point in the book they would get to the caravan, but no idea how or where she lived or who she lived with until I actually wrote it, which is my process for writing. And It was only as I was discovering this character and her situation that I realised that this book is really about rural poverty. And I knew nothing about rural poverty. It wasn't a subject I particularly thought about covering. It was not something that I thought needed to be told. It wasn't until I started looking for contemporary books about rural poverty in England that I realised I couldn't actually find any. It hadn't been written about, or certainly not recently. Um, So that made me really curious, why not? And what are the circumstances that people in England do have to face when they live in the way that Jeannie and Julius live? Was it from the very start the construct for the characters to be dealing with the bereavement? 
the loss of their mother. Was that always the starting off point? That was always the starting off point, but it wasn't a plan. I just wrote that Dot, the mother, got out of bed. I wrote that she walked downstairs and then I wrote that she had a stroke without thinking, oh, I want her to die. I just... Jeannie had a mother and she slept with her mother. They shared a bed together for most of Jeannie's life and Dot gets up and she dies. And when I think that in the first draft, I had Jeannie discovering the body and then a man comes into the room and I'm I'm writing and I'm thinking, well, who is this man? Oh, okay, he could be Jeannie's brother. What if he's her twin brother? What if they're 51 years old and they still live at home? And that's how I wrote. That is how I write. There was no plan that the mother would die at the beginning. What is the meticulous part of the planning process for you? No plan, except that I knew that Jeannie would get to the caravan in the woods at some point. So that was the point I was aiming for, but not thinking that that would be the end. But that was all I had. The way I write is not very sensible. And I have tried planning in the past. I thought that planning would be the better way to do it because I find it really difficult. I literally don't know what's coming next or somebody walks into a room or who they are. So I have tried planning in the past with other novels and it just doesn't work for me. What happens is that I become very bored because I know what's going to happen. So why am I writing this? This is It's like some kind of production line. It becomes like that. And in order to stop the boredom, I think what I do is my brain goes off on a tangent, the story goes off on a tangent, and then I'm not following the plan anyway. So why do it? And for four books, it's worked so far. So I have to learn to trust the process, even though I think this is a stupid process. I'm intrigued. The tangent is part of what excites you. Yeah, I'm discovering things as I write and characters say things in the novel and I have no idea kind of what they mean. And it's not until later on that something is revealed to me you know it's just my subconscious at work but it feels like there are mysteries that I'm writing that I don't understand and they have to be discovered and that although I find it very difficult I don't really enjoy writing that is the joy of it when it works the discovery the oh, so that's what you meant, or oh, so that's what this book is about, those moments. So what does the edit reveal then? The edit is is the big thing for me. That is the thing that I absolutely love and I spend a lot of time on making sure that if there are kind of mysteries or lies or secrets, they are revealed at the right place. I make sure that characters are fully rounded and I give them more backstory and more depth. I do all the high level stuff, character arc, all that stuff in the edits. And then I begin to focus on the paragraphs and then the sentences and then line by line and then word by word to make sure that every word is the right word in the right place and read it aloud again and again and again. 
I think in the last novel, or maybe maybe for Unsettled Ground, I tried to count up how many times I had read it aloud to myself before it was published. And it was something like 40. So, you know, there's the edits. That's the preciseness for me, not not the plotting or the writing. It's the editing. What do you think Unsettled Ground exposes from your subconscious to us? I mean, I think it exposes things that come up again and again in my work without me even thinking why it does that or how it does that. But in all four novels, characters live in houses that most people would not want to live in. There are often mothers who are problematic, but I I have no idea why that is being raised because I get on very well with my mother. But there's obviously some mother thing that crops up again and again. In the previous novel, in Bitter Orange, there are two very, very difficult mothers who uh, behave quite badly towards their adult children. And so I decided when I'd finished that book, I'm going to write a mother who loves her children. Try and do the opposite because I'm aware of that theme cropping up again and again. And so I wrote Dot, Jeannie's mother, but actually I think what's happened is that Dot loves her child or both her children to such an excess that she becomes a bad mother too. Do these mothers that you create help you in any way to process who you are or how good you are as a mother? Oh, I have lots of mother guilt an enormous amount of oh, mother guilt. That, parent guilt. Yeah, parent. Yeah, we all have that. We all have that. I don't know that it helps me process. Maybe it's maybe it helps me work that out. I don't know. It doesn't make the guilt any less. <laughs> I think it's something you just have to kind of live with. Oh, I could have done that better. It seems that you have a wonderful creative relationship with Henry, your son. You talked about him suggesting music to you. You clearly understand each other very well on a creative level. Yeah, definitely. While I was writing Unsettled Ground, he was he was living at home. He's left home now. And I work upstairs in what was my uh, youngest child's room. They've now left home. And so Henry was here in the room next door playing his guitar. He was doing a bit of gardening, but mostly he was playing his guitar <laughs> He would play kind of eight hours a day and we would discuss lyrics with each other. In fact, he still phones me up and says, is this the right word? I'm worried about this particular word in this lyric for this song. And we we will talk about it and its rhythm and how many syllables it has and what it rhymes with. He loves kind of working with words in that way, too. So that was a joy. Although, you know, I wanted him to go out and get a job. (laughs) I think um, a guitarist might find it a little bit rich, his author, writer, mother, telling him to go and get a job. I'm just putting it out there. I'm just... Um, We asked you to bring a few things to talk to us about. It's something that we always do on the Penguin podcast. And I thought we might start with something that appears in one of your books because it's such a big theme in Unsettled Ground. And as we've just been talking about your son, Henry, it's music. Music is important to you, isn't it? It's really, really important to me. And important to me just generally in my life, we always have music on in the house, whether we're cooking or reading. My husband and I have reading playlists, um, you know, background music that we read to. And 
when I first started writing, I did this. I find a playlist or work out a playlist that works for the book that I'm writing, whether that's an artist's whole work or a few albums or some tracks that I've put together, something that will help set the tone of the thing that I'm writing. And so in Unsettled Ground, when I first started writing it, I was casting around really for what music would help me with this book as the background track. And it took me a long time to find music that was right. And in the end, I came down to two pieces of music. One was um, an old English folk song called Polly Vaughan. And the version I listened to was sung by Tia Blake, uh, which is available on YouTube. And the other was a song by Henry Ailing, my son, that he had written called We Roam Through the Garden. We roam through the garden. And so in the end, I wrote this book to two pieces of music. So kind of over two years, I listened to them again and again and again. They were just on in the background over and over and over until I almost don't hear them anymore, certainly don't hear the lyrics. But they both have a very melancholic tone and I think that infused the writing and therefore made Jeannie and Julius also folk musicians who sing these two songs in the book, so the lyrics are in the book. Like a place to belong That you come Is that, again, something that predates you being an author, your love of music? I'd never really thought about it, but yes, I think so. So before I was a full-time writer, I worked in marketing, but before that, I was an artist, a stone carver, and I would always listen to music when I was carving, when I was working, creating art. It was always there in the background, but I don't think I so much thought about Working out which music was right for the piece of carving I was doing, it was just it was just on. Um, a book that changed you. It's a book called Learning to Love You More by Miranda July, who is an artist, a filmmaker, a writer, an actor. And this book, I think my husband found it and told me about it. And it was something that we did together when would it have been? Something like 2009, I think, 2010, actually, probably, quite soon after he and I had met. And in the book, Miranda July proposes lots of art projects for anybody to do, often lots of photography, but also all sorts of odd things. And at the time the book came out, People did them. They took photographs of the projects and then they sent them off to her website and she or whoever was working for her would upload them. Um, and people all around the world did these things. And then eventually, I think, the whole website was bought by the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. So somewhere or other, all these things are collated. And the projects were things like, some of them very simple. So take a photograph of under your bed do not clear it up under it. Do not hoover, do not dust. Just take a photo and, and send that in. Some of the more complicated make a carving of this particular, I think he might have been Greek, can't remember, Greek taxi driver that she uh, included a photograph of in the book and make a carving out of a vegetable of the head of this taxi driver. 
take a photograph of that and send it off. So I think I did a carving of uh, in, in in a sweet potato. I think <laughs> of the taxi truck. Low carb, very important. <laughs> Anyway, there were lots of things like this. Some of them were very public and they were the more challenging. Obviously, you can carve a sweet potato and just keep it at home and nobody knows that you've carved a sweet potato. But there were things like make an encouraging banner. So you had to make a banner with a saying, a phrase that encouraged yourself or encouraged other people with great big letters. Each each letter, I don't know if a foot high and make a banner out of it and go and hang it in a public place in order to encourage other people and your banner could be anything and then you had to take a photograph of it so so my banner was life is an adventure and this was before I'd even started writing and I hung it on the fence of a pub car park and took photographs and then ran away because it was kind of scary just to hang it up Another one was Tim had to have a one-person demonstration. So he made a placard that said, less driving, more walking. And he went and stood in the middle of a four-lane highway in Reading and stopped all the cars while I took photographs. And then we ran away. So they were challenging things, crazy, crazy things, a lot of them. And scary things, things that were really out of my comfort zone. But the feeling of having done them afterwards was tremendous. We were on such a high that we'd actually done these things. And after we'd finished everything in the book that we could possibly do, there were some things in the book that neither of us could do. So there was one, I remember, take a photograph of your parents kissing. But both our sets of parents are divorced. So that was never going to happen. So... I was looking around for more things that would give me this feeling of something that was really difficult, but I would feel such a great sense of achievement after I'd done it. And what I just found was in my local library, they had a short story slam, which is what they called it, which was an event that anybody could sign up for to write a short story. And then you had to read it out in front of the a paying audience and the audience voted on their winner. And I had not written a short story. I was 40, not written a short story since I was 16 at school. And certainly not read it out to an audience. That was a big challenge for me, really scary. And I had no idea how to write a short story. But I wrote one and I read it out. Oh, the audience also, they voted on their winner. And if you won, you got a share of the door's takings. So, of course, I did not win my first short story. And I did not win with my second or my third. But the event happened every six weeks or so. And I think by a year's time, I won. The audience voted my story the winner and I got something like £9.87. That was my first earnings from writing. And I learned a lot from writing all those short stories, which were very bad. And also learned a lot about reading your work out in public. And also learned a lot about my process and that I still don't really like writing, but I like having written I love that feeling of having done it. And so I will go through the pain of writing in order just to have that feeling of having done it. And so I can trace back the fact that I am a writer from 
Miranda July's book, Learning to Love You More. Sorry, that was a very, very long explanation, but there you go. Well, I was just going to say that if we stopped this podcast now, it would still be one of the most memorable ones I've done. That was just superb. And if anyone is listening to this and doesn't go and search out Learning to Love You More by Miranda July, then I'll be flabbergasted because I'm certainly going to go and search this out afterwards. I think I might have a one-man demonstration about uh, my kids not tidying up after themselves um, uh, outside there. But then saying that, I do that demonstration every day. So uh, it wouldn't be that unusual and it wouldn't be taking me out of my comfort zone. Claire. <laughs> now something from your desk. And uh, it's not a carving of a Greek taxi driver's head made out of sweet potato, but it is a carving. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> it is a carving. It's a stone carving of my son of Henry when he was a baby it's in limestone and so my first degree was in sculpture and I became a stone and a wood carver and did that for many years until kind of writing took over and and this is I don't think it's actually a very good carving but I do love it it just reminds me of him as a baby with his little chubby cheeks and I hope he won't mind me saying his big ears <laughs> Well, once they get to that age, uh, what are we other than vehicles for humiliating them? You know, I mean, that's one of the joys of uh, embarrassing your children. Uh, that's got to be one of the joys of life. What about a good luck charm? My good luck charm is my cat, who is called Alan, even though she is a girl, because we named her Alan when we were told that she was a boy and we went to pick her up and then they told her, oh, no, sorry, she's actually a girl. But the name Alan stuck. And I got her when I first started writing full time, when I gave up the other job, the marketing job, because I felt like I wanted another living being in the house. You know, the children were at school or at university and my husband was at work and I'd, I'd worked in an office for 23 years. So I got Alan kind of good luck charm I don't know just because I was a writer and I thought yeah a writer needs a cat but unfortunately Alan does not love me she loves my husband <laughs> when he comes home from work she hears his key in the door and she runs to the door she doesn't sit on my lap she doesn't really love me well, I mean, if we ever do a Penguin podcast with your husband, then uh, he can use that as his good luck charm, but I'm not sure it's necessarily yours, Claire, if I'm honest. We all have one of these things in our house, and that is an object uh, that we really should have thrown out ages ago, but for some reason we can't get rid of it. What would that be in your case? In my case, it is... A, a toy from my childhood, a stuffed koala bear that has lost all its fur. Obviously not a really stuffed koala bear, but, but it's quite disgusting because it, it is clearly some kind of animal skin that it's stuffed with. But I didn't know that it was a koala bear when I was a child, so its name is Panda rather than koala. And it's completely falling apart, quite horrifically and is sewn up at the back a bit like Frankenstein's monster but it got moths and so I did actually put it in the bin 
I shouldn't say it, he, I, I put Panda in the bin and then I put, I think I posted on Instagram or Twitter that, oh, I've had to throw Panda away. And everybody said, no, 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 get Panda out the bin, put Panda in the freezer, that will kill off all the moths and then he'll be fine again. So, so I still do have Panda, but kind of quite like Panda to get moths again and then I can actually throw away, him away, throw him away. You clearly have a much more comfortable relationship with technology than your characters Jeannie and Julius do. Yeah, I think I do. They have uh, very little knowledge of technology at all. Nor do they want to, presumably. Well, I think it's just they haven't. Julius has a mobile phone that he uses for work. It's not a smartphone. It's very basic. Jeannie has never even used the internet, has no computer, has no idea how it works until a point at the book where she stays with a friend or a friend of her mother's. She has, I'm not sure she's even really watched television. So, yeah, very, very little technology. Why? Why did you want them to be so disconnected from what is ubiquitous in our lives now? I think it is ubiquitous, but there are still some people who don't have access to it. And I want Especially in rural communities, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I've done some events with bookshops who service this particular area in Wiltshire and people who've come onto those events have said, this is what it's like in these communities. There are lots of families who don't have a computer at home. And during um, lockdown, when they children couldn't go to school... They had no education at all because they didn't have access to a computer. And I think it's very easy to forget that when we take it so much for granted, when we live in cities, when we see it around us, um, that there are people without that. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for hanging out with us today, especially, as I said at the beginning, on your day off. But then... You did kind of say you never have a day off, really. No, and it's been great fun. It's It's been really good. And and actually, me speaking to you now means that my husband is downstairs cooking the dinner, which is rather nice. Too. Oh, good. Well, you really are having a fantastic day off then. Good. Yeah. Well, um, I shall let you go and enjoy the fruits of his labour. Is he a good cook? He is. Yeah, very good cook. Very good. Oh, well, superb then. So you won't have to order a pizza then uh, if it all goes horribly wrong. Claire, thank you so much. It has been beyond interesting talking to you today. And thank you to you too for listening to the Penguin Podcast. Now, I'll be back in two weeks' time with Pankaj Mishra, whose second novel, Run and Hide, is out later this year, more than 20 years after his first award-winning novel, The Romantics, was published. That is going to be a fascinating conversation, trust me. And don't forget, and this is important, to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out tell your friends and family let's face it they're having poorer lives because they don't have this in their life and finally if you want to find out more about this podcast or claire's work go to penguin.co.uk podcasts i'm nihal arthanaika i shall see you next time